Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 147, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And normally this time of year, like start of November, it kind of feels a bit like the quiet before the storm, doesn't it? Do you remember being a kid and like, you just couldn't wait for Christmas to get started? Bloody Christmas adverts already <laughs> on TV. I'm just like, God, it was Halloween. <laughs> like yesterday, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's going to come around so quickly. That's it. But I mean, what I do like about this time of year is I've been moving house recently, my man cave is all set up. I know you've been working on yours as oh, well. Yeah. I've been spending so much time indoors playing games recently, which is like a novelty. Couldn't do that over summer. It was too warm. Yeah, my VR was so hot. Like literally, <laughs> I'd do two minutes on that. Now I can do about half an hour and then I'm like, get this thing off my head. But another thing is kind of unwanted gifts. And you know, you have raspberry pies. Oh, I've uh, got them coming out of my ears, raspberry pies. Yeah, well, we may have a little use for them today, which combines an old school piece of technology with our guest. Now, also, I mean, you mentioned about gifts and stuff there too. It is the time of year when people are starting to think about what they might want in the Christmas stockings. And I'm sure there's going to be so many products that are coming out over the next few weeks or few months that are all vying for our Christmas spending money. So we've got a few ideas and things that you might want to see in your Christmas stocking and that one this week that you probably definitely will not. So we'll talk more about that in just a bit. <laughs> now, we are going to be covering something we haven't really talked about on this podcast a lot. Yet it is something that we've got so much nostalgia for. And that is teletext. Yeah, we've had Mr. Biffo talking about Digitizer, which was a kind of video games magazine, yeah. a daily video games magazine, actually, which is crazy. But the legacy of teletext, especially in the UK, is huge. Like, we have teletext holidays, yeah. which are still going, even though the service like got shut down in 2012. It's a website now, isn't it? Yeah, but they're still one of the big holiday agencies going. And there's, there's loads of stuff. Digitizer's just got a show. Yeah. Absolutely. I remember being on teletext holidays, you know, with my dad, trying to look at holidays and there'd be like, was it like a thousand pages or something stupid? And then he'd be like, oh, where's the hold button when you arrive down? Oh, you <laughs> missed it. You've got to wait 20 minutes now for it to come back. go all the way around. And then yeah. it's gone by the time it comes back. But I mean, we've all got memories of being there as kids. I remember stuff like Bamboozle, you know, like the kids quiz. It was on yeah. Channel 4. Digitizer used to read that gaming magazine religiously on there. Sitting there on my like, you know, Superman PJs. Cross-legged in front of the telly, like with a little just even getting jokes. I'm sure they yeah. used to have like a rubbish joke that you could look at every day and they be did. like, little chuckle, you know, dad <laughs> joke, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, but that, I mean, in that pre-internet age, it was really the only way that you could get that kind of instant on-demand information. Yeah, and now it's kind of shut down. Uh, there's a, a community called TFAX, and they've actually started a new service that you can get in your Raspberry Pis, which is amazingly exciting. And our guest is the Teletext archaeologist. Now, Jason Robertson is going to be joining us this week. This, I mean, when you mentioned that we've got him on, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, a lot of the stuff we were talking about before we did the interview. It really started to come back to me, and it was kind of, a lot of it was forgotten. Because we talk about games and that all the time and computers and stuff, but I was like, oh, God, I remember that. This week's interview is so nostalgic. You're going to hear stuff that you probably haven't thought about for like 20, 30 years. Totally, and the stuff that Jason does is amazing. He basically extracts teletext from video but like he does betamax as well yeah. even videos from the <laughs> 70s and i just don't know how he does it we're gonna find out in this interview but uh that's astonishing isn't it that you can kind of get old news weird four-bit information from a videotape well i mean you know, a lot of us have probably got boxes of vhs tapes in the attic that we think or you might have an old recording of jurassic park on there off telly when it was first broadcast but there is more on those tapes than you realize because teletext went over the air and it was kind of encoded in these video pictures. And we'll find out a bit more about how it worked. But essentially, you can get these old tapes that you recorded, like back in the 80s and 90s, and you can still get the Teletext pages off them. It's crazy. Yeah. And then if you have a Raspberry Pi, you can view it on there uh, using John's kind of archive. And you were telling me about, you know, when you first saw this new Teletext service running, and you saw, like, BBC News updated and yeah, all that Yeah, so I was kind of... I was like walking past, uh, uh, I think it was a retro computer museum. Yeah. Uh, I walked past and I saw BBC News on Teletext. I thought, oh, that's an old one. And then I looked at the headlines and I was like, wait, that's today's news. <laughs> How have yeah. they done that? And it turns out they 
can get feeds from the BBC as well and actually still have a daily news service on there. It's mad. So we're going to find out all about that, you know, archiving the classic Teletext pages, how you can look at them again, and also how you can access Teletext in 2018 um, using stuff like the Raspberry Pi on your modern TV. So it is one for the geeks this week, but it's so interesting. Jason Robertson, the Teletext archaeologist, is coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. I love it when we get really geeky. Yeah, yeah, it's good. <laughs> now, before we get into this week's news stories, um, we do appreciate it. It's a very expensive time of year coming up. You know, everyone wishes it was another payday tagged on between the next two. But, I mean, we have got all our renewal costs coming up with it being the third anniversary of the podcast very soon. And if you'd like to help support the Retro Hour and help keep this show going into 2019, then all you have to do is nip onto our website. We do have a little PayPal button on there, um, cryptocurrency if you're into that too. And, of course, any donations that we get into the running of the show massively help. We've got all our renewal costs coming up in January so it'll be very well timed if you can just you know spare the price of a coffee or something like that you can find it right now at theretrohour.com a little tip jar is on the front page and for doing that you will get a mention on a future episode in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame just like this week and I do apologise before I say this because I'm going to completely butcher it I'm sure uh, but thank you Yane Huane Haino our mate Darren Coles Ian Fleming and Mark Sorantz. Who all made donations into the running of the show, and you can do the same at theretrohour.com, and that will be hugely appreciated. Now, I did mention I've been moving house recently. Um, one of the things I found that I hadn't seen for a while, um, a little bag containing my old Game Boy Pocket I found in there with a few games. Oh, and... uh, yeah, I've, I, I actually uh, play Blackpool, bought this awesome customised Game Boy Advance, and it had, like, a backlit screen on it and everything, and it was all replaced and got that for my... Uh, fiance's birthday and she was well happy. It looked gorgeous, that screen. So I'd forgotten how bad the screen was on the yeah. original Game Boys. Trying to play mine the other day and I was like, what? That said, the screen on it was better quality than the camera back in the day. Do you remember the Game Boy camera? Yes, well, the Game Boy camera uh, has kind of taken an interesting twist and I'm surprised nobody's done this before, actually. But um, what's happened is uh, an amateur photographer... Has bas- called Matthew Paris has basically hooked up his two hundred pound Olympus camera <laughs> to the sensor. So what he's done is he's he's taken his camera sensor out, I assume, and he's using the Game Boy sensor on it. And this has really helped with the exposure and the quality of shots. So we've got an article that we're going to link in the show notes. If you look at it, it's it's a monstrous contraption. <laughs> it's kind of a what, elastic well, band and electric tape is holding it together? Well, it's a Game Boy Colour with a DSLR, yeah, taped to the top of it, essentially, isn't it? Totally. But if you look in the article at the bottom, he has uh, a without modified picture on yep. the Game Boy Advance, which is of a girl on it. And then up at the top, he's got the new versions that have been taken, and they look fantastic. Like, I remember you used to get... Tiny, tiny, tiny little dots on the Game Boy Advance camera. This one's kind of more blocky and uh, the shading looks correct and everything. But it does cost £200, doesn't it? I mean, it's not bad for a DSLR, 200 quid actually. Um, and I imagine you could probably do it with any DSLR camera. And he's essentially putting the, the Game Boy camera through a 50 millimeter lens so obviously the original had that tiny little plastic lens on there didn't yeah. it so I mean, it does make sense that it's going to look a lot nicer but yeah the resolution of those is actually really good yeah yeah no it, it looks like it's got a really nice aesthetic and when you kind of looked at the Game Boy stuff when it was especially when it was printed out afterwards you'd hardly be able to see anything <laughs> would you I had a Game Boy printer as well actually um, yeah. I didn't get that up and running but yeah my selfies that I took on that back in the day um I wouldn't want to see him in that high resolution, if I'm honest. Uh, that's a pretty cool ca- uh, hack, but imagine if, like, you know, you had a paparazzi, you got a telescopic lens and everything, and, you know, <laughs> took it to the next level. I'm sure someone will do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's only a matter of time. So if you want to check that out, we'll put that in the rest of this week's stories, of course, in the show notes, like we do every week at theretrohour.com. And I found this um, article that I thought kind of resonated a bit with me. Some of it I don't agree with, but I thought this might be a bit of a giggle to talk about. Um, a website called Mandatory have done what they say are the top 10 retro gaming annoyances that they are glad are now stuck in the past. Okay, let's hear some. Now, number one, I think we can all agree with, checkpoint codes in games. Yeah, yeah, that is very frustrating. Um, why? <laughs> like, you know, we've been playing some Game Boy Advance games, and I think there's a function to actually save on them, but some, quite a lot of them are 
game codes as well that you have to put in. Well, that so, was, you know, before the days of, like, save states and... Um, yeah, you end up having a little notebook, don't you, at yeah. the side, and then you lose all your codes and you have to start again. <laughs> and even then, it w- wouldn't often put you right back where you were in the game. It'd be, like, the nearest, you know, checkpoint, essentially, yeah. wouldn't it? They were awful, but I remember... A lot of the time, you'd wait till a magazine came out and would print them all out, wouldn't you, to get yeah. to the next level of the game? So I don't miss those. Um, you know, the talk neither make an example. Echo the Dolphin for the Mega Drive was a notorious dif- notoriously difficult game that most kids never even came close to beating. Not even checkpoint codes were enough to make that a reasonable challenge. The next one, I'm a bit divided on this one. They're talking about small TVs. Now, they're saying that, you know, not only were CRTs pretty heavy back in the day and took up a lot of room but they say these days we kind of take it you know for granted that you can sit there in front of like your 65 inch lcd screen but they're saying it was a bit of a pain having to sit there in front of a 14 inch crt not at all i've got a 14 inch crt at home next to my 32 inch lcd and that looks awesome yeah and i i I play stuff through there and it's multi-sync and it's awesome yeah so I think that's just because they've probably gone, oh, tellies, oh, you had to lug them around, but they haven't actually sat down and compared them. They, they have a dis- different aesthetic, don't they? Yeah, well, totally. For old consoles, CRTs, you know, we talked about last week, I think, or the week before, weren't we? I was actually having a little uh, debate with someone on Facebook on one of the retro groups the other day, and this guy said, he said, um, uh, well, I haven't got room for a CRT. And a lot of people were agreeing with him, like, well, we all made room for them until about 10 years ago, so yeah, the house yeah. has got smaller. <laughs> God, I used to think of the stuff that I used to balance my CRT on. Like, I used to have this huge 19-inch one, and it yeah. used to sit on my Amiga, and I could swear I'd see in the case kind of buckle. <laughs> a friend of mine had, like, a telescopic arm he put on his desk that supported, like, a 19-inch CRT. Wow. That must have been some strength in that yeah. arm, yeah. Uh, next on their list is Blowing Games. Now, obviously, that was the thing that you did with cartridges, even though you were always advised not to, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, and and as soon as I got this Game Boy Advance, I put a Game Boy game in, yeah. didn't work, knew straight away, I'm not going to blow on it, I'm going to get some IPA, isopropyl oh, alcohol, and do it properly. How boring. Yeah, I know, it's sad, <laughs> but it works now, every time. That said, I have done it with the Switch before, you just buy out of instinct, I get a, a little card, <laughs> like, blow it before I put it in, I don't know. I blow on CD-ROMs. <laughs> <laughs> Other things they're talking about in here, I mean, they're talking about snow internet, I mean, obviously. Uh, ball mice as well, now this is a bit of an interesting one. I did the other day, I was playing one of my old systems, and the mouse wasn't moving properly, I was like, oh, I've got to clean the ball on it. Yeah. That was something that, you know, we completely, something we don't have to do anymore, but it was a bit of a pain. They and were really good to chuck at your mates in the IT room, though. They absolutely came if you threw a ball <laughs> mouse at someone. Well, the actual great. mouse or just a ball? The ball. Right. <laughs> we used to do that, actually. We'd nick them out of the mice and like, hide them around the room, yeah. and then, you know, the class couldn't start. Little rebels. But I, I never used to do it properly, you know, like you said there with the IP and all that. I just get my fingernail and try yeah, to yeah, scrape the, the black scud off it. Yeah. Which is pretty minging. Um, controller ergonomics. And now they've got a picture of the Mega Drive controller here that I actually think still is very comfortable in the hand. Yeah, I, I think, I don't know, because we come from a, a, a kind of computery background yeah. and we had the Amiga, which had up to jump on a lot of things and that was really frustrating. But now they have a monster joystick where you can actually remap live on the joystick the up to jump. So you yeah. can get over that. I mean, you know, things that I've noticed recently, floppy disks as well. I mean, the, I just can't be bothered with them anymore. Even on my old systems, it's like the other day I was, I was looking at downloading a game that didn't have like a hard disk installer and it came on like six disks and I thought I've got to download all the images, I've got to find six blank disks, write them a disk and I thought, oh, I can't be bothered. I, I kind of still love floppies yeah. and uh, I've got a tool called ADF Blaster and you can just put it in and it's like burning a CD, you just put it in and then reboot and yeah, I found a load of floppies from the post office the other day. Okay. So I've got like loads of branded post, post office, office stuff. Made floppy like, disks. Yeah, like like all all stuff for their tills and counters actually, which is quite mad. And uh, the last one on their list, which uh, did actually make me laugh, it goes add-ons before the days of the PlayStation and Xbox One, where you had the 32X, a Mega CD, and a multitude of other bizarre and wonky add-ons for consoles. Uh, these days, there's no way Nintendo, Sony, or Microsoft would ever get away with releasing hardware like that. Thank goodness for that. And then I thought, PSVR? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we've lost multi-taps, haven't we? Remember, yeah. multi-taps used to be, every system would have a different multi-tap, and... Uh, now we just sync the controllers <laughs> to have more players. Well, that's yeah. actually one thing that is not on their list, but I think, yeah, you know, having cords on controllers, you know, yeah, it yeah. did really limit how close you could get to your system. Though that said, the other day, I was playing on my PSVR, which I don't very often, and first time I played it in my new living room, and it's like quite a big room, and I sat on the couch and it said out of range. 
what am I going to do? So I've had to get a camp chair for gaming in the living room now because the couch is too far away. <laughs> I'm so. going on my VR chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as if I didn't feel geeky enough with a headset on. So if you want to check the rest of that list and maybe let us know your retro gaming annoyances. Uh, maybe you've got some. It's always nice to hear from you during the week. You can tweet us at Retro Hour UK uh, on Facebook and Instagram as well. Now, let's talk about this Sega Saturn music player. What on earth is this about? Yeah, this is crazy. So I've just seen uh, these kind of Sega Saturn-themed music player. Now, these music player are these kind of high-res ones. So have you heard of these? These new, no. new high-resolution audio, um, which is basically, it's like... Higher than flak, I think it's it's completely like uncompressed. It's like, un- like whatever is it, yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, there's all these high end little devices that you're getting at the moment. Um, this is actually called the CT10, and they've rebranded it from Activo to Sega Saturn. So, <laughs> and it, it looks like a little Sega Saturn. It looks like a little Saturn, and they've even got the disc drive in there and everything. It's it's. $397 at the moment, Ooh. so it's quite expensive. <laughs> but it also comes pre-installed with a few Sega tunes. Okay. So it has a Supersonic Racing from Sonic R. Oh, and, I did like that. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dreams Dreams from Dreams Into Night. From Nights Into Dreams, yeah. Uh, yeah, Nights Into uh, Dreams. That's cool. I mean, it's released in Japan at the moment. And I can see them in kind of stuff like that. You know, it, it does work in the Japanese market because they're quite into like kind of wacky, bizarre stuff like that. I'm not sure I'd buy one if I'm honest, for $397. I, yeah, I don't know who the market is for this. I do think it's cool, though. Well, I my, do want one. My friend's got one of these, and he spent about 300 400 pounds, not, not on this actual model, but he's okay. got one of these high-res audio players, and there seems to be quite a market for it. You know, people, real audiophiles that are into that kind of stuff. So this time you can combine your two loves, retro yeah. gaming and audio. Well, I was watching a video that Techmoan did about um, HD CDs. Have you seen that? Like CDs that are really high quality audio. They're, they're released in Japan as well. Oh. Yeah, so I mean, there is a market. I mean, it is is a limited market. I imagine that like, audio files who also love the Sega Saturn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're limiting it a bit there. Yeah, all your Nintendo fans aren't going to get that one. But I love the fact that it does actually come in what looked like an original Sega Saturn box as well. Sega are licensing some weird stuff at the moment, aren't they? Definitely. What was that, Sonic Toaster? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Long may it continue. Gives us stuff to talk about every week, doesn't it? Definitely. Now, the Atari Lynx is a system I've got a lot of fondness for. And it turns out the Lynx has actually got a pretty decent homebrew scene. And uh, it's probably going to get even better as there is a new flash cart coming out next year. And I've been reading about this new homebrew game for the Lynx called Lackim's Legacy. Now, this is a couple of guys on Atari age, and they're essentially making a full RPG for the Atari Lynx. And that it looks awesome. pretty good. Have you, it, have you seen the video on, on, on their website? Yeah, it looks really nice. Um, it's just awesome. I, I love the graphics as well. The kind of uh, quality of the drawing that they've done is quite high for a Lynx game, actually. Yeah, I mean, there is like a big thread on Atari Age at the moment. And they're saying it is quite early in development. They've got a lot of work to do in it yet. And if you watch the video they've put on YouTube, it has sound effects and music running at the same time. Okay, which wow. is pretty cool. Yeah. But they're saying there might be some problems with like RAM limitations. Apparently, they've got a trick where they swap things in and out of RAM from the ROM. So <laughs> it sounds confusing to get it, you know, uh, really running well. But I reckon these guys, you know, that these kind of projects, they'll optimize the hell out of it, and it'll oh, be yeah. probably one of the best titles on there uh, for RPG. Yeah, I mean, it did. The, what the sound chip in the in the Lynx was pretty good, you know. Especially considering that came out in 1989, and like you look at like the original Game Boy. And stuff that they can do on the links in comparison, it was worlds apart. And they reckon this game is going to have um, NPCs in there as well. It's going to have a, a fully functioning inventory system. Um, there's going to be like, you know, eight independent animated objects on screen at any one time, projectiles in the game too. And they're essentially waiting for this flashcard to come out, I think, before they can release it, because obviously people want to put it on their own systems and play it on the original hardware. Um, but it's an isometric RPG game as well. And I, I've never been the biggest fan of RPGs in the past, but I think I've got quite into the links recently, so I would like a new game on it. And it does look like it's it's quite an easy pick up and play one. Yeah, I love the isometric graphics. It really looks like it reminds me of Populous. Yeah. You know, it's it's got that kind of look. Uh but a bit more a bit more fun indie gamey uh and a bit more modern. Well I went home a couple of weeks ago um to see the family and my little nephew Harry's like five years old. Whenever I'm there he goes, Uncle Dan have you brought it? Have you brought the Nintendo Switch? <laughs> and I actually had the links in my bag, you know, as well, to show my brother. Um, so he was like, oh, bring it up. I wouldn't mind to play on that. I got it out and he looked at it like, what's this? 
uh, and it, you can see the disappointment on his face <laughs> that it wasn't the Nintendo Switch. But when I got like Pat lined up on it, it was like, oh, okay. And he sat there, he was playing on it. He loved it after about 10 minutes. I had to drag it out of him. But it was, awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. You got a new generation loving the links. So before we get into our interview and we talk all about teletext, I mean, we do need to talk about this story. It has been all over at games, up to more mischief, it seems. Now, this is a really bizarre story. Have you heard about this? At Games, obviously, the company that they haven't got the best reputation in the they, world of retro gaming. All I know about At Games was that they made that Mega Drive uh, that, that kind of the sound was messed up on it. It wasn't amazingly good. And now Sega's possibly dropped them to build their own yeah. Mega Drive. That's essentially it. I mean, they brought out a few of these kind of clone cheap consoles. I think they did like an Atari one a while ago as well. Cheap and tacky. Was yeah. It? yeah. They, they haven't got you know, a very good reputation at all. But it turns out recently they've been getting some pretty good reviews on websites and from uh, a few YouTubers as well for this product they've got called the Bandai Namco Flashback. Okay, so they've teamed up with Bandai Namco. That's, uh, yeah, Bandai Namco even. Well, essentially, yeah, it's, it's eight arcade classics. You've got stuff on there like, uh, you know, Pac-Man was built into it as well. And a couple of YouTubers, including a guy called John Hancock, who Check his channel out if you haven't. He's really good. He did a review of it. And again, he was a bit skeptical. Oh, it's at games. He reviewed it and he said, actually, it's a pretty good product. Yeah. So it plugs into your TV. It's got a little controller that looks a bit like a Mega Drive controller, actually, with these games built in. Now, as it turns out, after it got these uh, good reviews from a few YouTubers, it got released into um, a few stores in America. And it turns out even though the box was exactly the same and... Um, there's no change in description. It was the same artwork on the front of the box and everything. When you got it, it was completely different to the <laughs> review units they sent out to people. Now, the big difference is the review units had original arcade ROMs on there. So if you want to play, you know, Pac-Man, it was the original arcade version of Pac-Man, the proper version. But the version they've been selling at like Walmart in America, they've got NES ROMs instead. That's really weird as well yeah. because... That is odd, because why would they put NES ROMs on? Because Nintendo are the guys who are going to sue you to hell. Unless they had a deal with Nintendo where they're like, oh, we've got these NES ROMs anyway, let's distribute them. But then why wouldn't they put the arcade stuff on? Yeah. Really odd, that is. I, d I don't get it. Obviously... And, and, and then they're not, all, the, uh, all the screenshots are incorrect then, and the box is accurately not describing what's actually inside it. They've got that little disclaimer there on the bottom. Screenshots may differ from actual product on the back of the box. It is the arcade that's that's an old school um, bastard trick. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was what they used to do on cassette get tape it games, is, isn't yeah. it, back in the day. It's really bizarre, though, because obviously the hardware can run the arcade versions of it. Yeah, and if Why? there was these reviews, so have have these kind of... Has there been a comparison with the older units then? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, um, again, after that video came out, John Hancock, he did another video saying, look, okay, ignore my review, don't buy this product. It's different in the shops. And there was like a comparison video as well showing what he showed in his video and like uh, what the release version is. And yeah, they're totally different games. It's like, I just can't get my head around why they do that. And someone actually called him out on Twitter. They tweeted them and actually put like, you know, class action lawsuit incoming. They replied, and the only kind of excuse they give, as it were, was um, some of the early units had NES ROMs on there, but the later ones will have arcade eventually, but not the ones that are in shops at the moment, which seems really weird. It does It does seem really weird. I, I think they're a company after a fast book, and uh, this probably proves it. But, you know, they're going to make it anyway. They're going to keep pumping out these systems and mums across and dads are going to buy them thinking this is what my son had and then the kids are going to be disappointed you know well, i think like, like we've said before they're aimed at casuals essentially aren't they they're like yeah. you know the person who might not have played pac-man for like 30 years and they're spotted in like a supermarket That's exactly it and yeah and i'm glad sega's kind of dropped them now if they're messing about doing this that's a rumor isn't it that sega are going to bring their um their mega drive mini in-house that's why it's mm. been delayed um i love this comment though on the article in Nintendo Life. Top comment on there. At Games is like the opposite of the Nintendo seal of quality. Something looks great, and then you see the At Games logo and walk away. So, yeah. if you say, I mean, generally, I would never buy any of their products. I don't understand why they keep doing it, though. It's just, just baffling. Fast really. book, fast yeah, book. That's what I think it is. So uh, we'll keep you updated on that story if we hear any more. And, of course, you can read that and everything else we've talked about on this week's show on our website, theretrohour.com. Um, we did have a little issue with iTunes last week that we hope is sorted out now. Yeah, basically, uh, iTunes started, stopped pumping out to a few people. Yeah. So um, 
check your iTunes and refresh yeah. and uh, see if you can actually download us this week. So if you can't, then we're available on Audio Boom, but this issue should be resolved. Yeah, I mean, well, if you're listening to this, I get it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. That's your way at the end. That's it. But if you ever do have any more problems, uh, do let us know, because we do get a few people getting in touch on Twitter. Turns out it was at Apple's end, not ours. So, um, yeah, obviously, if you, if you do spot anything like that, let us know. We'll get straight on it. But you can get the show every week on our website at theretrohour.com. Right then, let's get our teletext on. This week's special guest, the teletext archaeologist, Jason Robertson. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest, a topic that we, even though we've both really been into this all of our lives and have got so much nostalgia, something we really haven't covered enough on this podcast. This week's guest is Jason Robertson and we're going to be talking about Teletext. So uh, welcome to the show, Jason. Hello. Hi, Dan. Hi, Roy. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Now, before we get into kind of, you know, what's happening with Teletext today, because there is still quite an active scene around it. I mean, I remember being a kid and my dad coming home with, like, um, our first Teletext TV and being blown away that you could get this kind of on-demand stuff at the time. I mean, what was your kind of, like, earliest memory of Teletext? Did you have kind of a, a moment when you were blown away by it as a kid? Yeah, it's much the same, really, isn't it? I mean, they, at the time, when um, when I discovered Teletext, it must, must have been about 1980, 81, that sort of time, we went over to a relative's house and they had a Teletext set and they basically sat me down, handed me the remote control and said you know play with this and it was like it was amazing that um that because television in those days was very much uh, you watched what was on and you had no control over what because there was, there was no video recorders in wide circulation at that time so you watched what was on and you had to put up with it but but handy this teletext controller you could choose your own image that was on the screen at that time and you could um, see what was going to be on the television without the radio times. You could see what the news was going to be, what the weather was going to be, whenever you wanted to see it. It wasn't when the TV news came on or the weather came on. It was when you wanted to see it, which was just remarkable for the time. I think, you know, it kind of had that excitement that the, the web or the internet had when I first got on it, actually, for me. Yes, exactly. It's exactly the same thing, really, isn't it? I mean, they're similar in more ways than you imagine because, uh, you know, the internet data travels via packets as does teletext data it's exactly the same thing so um it's uh they share you know in more more ways than one they uh, do share a sort of a common heritage if you like um i think a lot of people remember teletext because they had different experiences with it i know that um playing and well watching live football on teletext was a, a whole thing and there was the teletext holidays and stuff uh, what what uses did they have for it then oh apart from the football and teletext well as i say i mean it's um on demand news and on demand weather um a bit later on of course there was the quizzes uh, that was on with well, they used to have quizzes from the start on teletext but they were very much a case of um here's a question, press reveal to find out what the answer is. So you could press reveal and upward pop the answer. Or we could have jokes as well, had reveals on. But um, a bit later on, many people remember Bamboozle, where you had the fast text buttons at the bottom of the screen. You had the red, the yellow, the blue and the green options that you could press. Uh, and the, the quiz ran that way and you could you had to choose the right answer. So yeah, there's many, many uses for teletext. I mean, there's uh, not only is there the teletext that you could see but there's also hidden things within teletext as well there is um data transmission that went on there was a service called uh televox that ran in the uh, late 80s and uh that, that basically you rang up a premium telephone line and you had your own teletext service then you had to speak page numbers down the phone to the server and it would uh, send you the pages that you requested and they were they were sort of like you know higher premium pages uh, of information. There was that as well. The BBC used it. Uh, they had an internal system called Telfax, which um, was uh, often leaked out onto the normal teletext signal as well. So I've got a couple of examples of that in the archive. So there's um, 
not outside of the usual information. There's all sorts of really interesting stuff hidden within teletext, you know, if you go digging for it. So was that BBC thing like a, an intranet kind of thing, essentially, then? Yeah, that's exactly what it was, yeah. It had um, descriptions of programmes and it had uh, an inter- internal telephone directory. You know, that sort of thing that you would see on an internet, sort of, the sort of corporate stuff. I don't think it's terribly interesting to the outside viewer, but, um, you know, anything that's sort of hidden is automatically interesting, isn't it, by its very nature. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, that's uh, very interesting. I'm still working on extracting all that, so it's a bit noisy at the moment, but uh, that's a work in progress and there's uh, definitely some data there to get out. But we'll get more into how you actually extract, you know, these pages all these years later in, in, in just a bit. But, I mean, I remember being a kid at school and we had, like, BBC microcomputers. And one day, I think it was, like, mode seven on the BBC micro was, like, teletext mode. And when yeah, I got into right. that and, like, there was a program where we could make teletext pages and I was like, whoa, hang on, this is that thing I use on TV at home. I mean, how were teletext pages actually made then? What was it with the BBC micro? Um, well, in the in the early days, no, they had. Um, I think they, I believe, they put the data, the, the pages of data, onto the main computer using punch tape in the very, very early days. Mm. So it went on that way. They had uh, dedicated uh, sort of terminals, like in the early days of computing, we used to have uh, mainframes, and we had terminals that connected to the mainframe. So that the terminal didn't have any computer computing power of its own; it connected to the mainframe. And I believe they had that sort of setup. Um, in the early days of Teletext too, so not necessarily BBC Micros, although you could create the pages, you know, just as well on the BBC Micro with it having the Mode Seven functionality. Not to be confo- confused with Mode Seven on the SNES. Yeah, <laughs> <It's a different laughs> unfortunate <laughs> coincidence, though that name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It'll be a different thing. Well, we've had a uh, Mr. Biffo of Digitizer fame on, and uh, he was a very risque character, and I, I guess he was kind of running Teletext at one point by himself, wasn't he? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, well, he'd like you to think that, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, well, yeah, he was a very popular part of um, the uh, Teletech service, the Teletech Limited service. Anyway, um, and that you know that ran from what for about ten years, I think, Digitizer. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the one of the things with um, recovering Teletext is that. Teletext, it was it was transient in nature. It was it was shown one day and it had gone the next day. All the information that was on the service that you watched yesterday was no longer there. You can't you can't you know there's no archive for you to um, read old pages on. It's it's here one day, gone the next. So pages like Digitizer, which are very sort of you know culturally important, just disappeared and they've they've gone and they're lost forever. You know, until until now, when we can recover them. I mean, for people who might be listening outside the UK, I mean, Digitizer. We did a show on it before, like like Ravi said, but it was it was essentially like a, a daily video games magazine that you would read on your television by teletext. But they used to put out some pretty risque stuff as well. I mean, was was the legislature at the time were they kind of paying attention to that, or could you kind of slip under the radar? I think it definitely slipped under the radar there. I think you you had to know what you were reading. I think it's very much like um, on, on children's shows. Sometimes you'll see they'll they'll do jokes that adults understand, but the children will just go straight over the heads. It's that 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 sort of thing. I think the humour on digitizer. Well, you mentioned bamboozled there earlier, and that was a kind of teletext quiz. Well, do, do you know of any other teletext games? There was they they did do a similar one that was sport based. Um, I think it was ten to one. I think that was called. Uh, but that, that would use exactly the same um, sort of technology in there. But uh, I think that I mean Bamboozle was a fantastic use of the technology because it was, it was very interactive. In the, so it was no longer pressure of the answer. It was you know multiple choice. It was uh, you know, I thought it was a brilliant use of the technology that uh, somebody invented there. Yeah, because I mean, if anyone ever used that, it was essentially you'd um, you'd see a character on the screen, you get a question, you'd have to say it in your mind and then press a button and see if you got it right, wouldn't you? Essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you could work out if you if you could you could press all the colour buttons sometimes and work out which was the page number that was different from the others, and that would be the right answer. So you could sort of uh, cheat as well at that uh, at bamboozle. Well, sadly, in 2012, CFAX closed, and this was kind of one of our main teletech services. I think it was the last one in the UK. Um, was this like a launching point for many new teletext projects or archiving? I think it's, it's much of a, very much a coincidence, I think. It's a happy coincidence. But um, 
I think I started to use my uh, TV capture card to archive pages from about 2010 onwards because I knew it was closing. It was going to be closing, so I thought, I'd, you know, I better save some um, services for you know, the benefit of the future because um, all we had at that point was whatever people have managed to save off their PT capture cards, uh, which wasn't very much, um, particularly from earlier in the 80s. Um, so I, I think I started archiving in 2010, but in 2012, Alistair Buxton invented a way of um, fetching, recovering teletext from videotape, which, um, which frankly, I was astounded by. I thought, this is the most remarkable thing I've ever seen because, you know, I mean, we've all tried it, I guess. We've put a videotape into the player. We've pressed the text button, hoping to see teletext come up, but nothing really happens. If you're lucky, you might get a, a mangled page, but that's the, that's the best you could get, um, unless you had SVHS, which was pretty good. But um, the, 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 being able to recover it from videotape was a, you know, a remarkable thing uh, to happen. And that came out about 2012, but about the same time CFAX finished. With that happening and the increase in computer power, I think um, Teletext sort of moved from being a, a, a BBC-controlled thing but and being controlled by the TV companies because the TV companies have closed all their Teletext services. It moved then from being uh, an enthusiast-driven thing, at least in the UK, where there, there was no more television services. Um, so in the UK, I mean, the, the enthusiasts sort of have took it over, democratised Teletext. So that blew my mind when I read about that, because, I mean, I always kind of assumed that teletext was kind of, you know, encoded in the television picture. That's why your television could look at it. But the fact that you could actually put a videotape in that you recorded like 30 years ago and still extract that information, I mean, it's obviously still in there, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, well, it is part of the TV picture. I mean, you're right. It's, it's um, it, The teletext data itself is stored at the very, very top of the TV picture, but televisions are set up to sort of crop that crop the, the 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 video picture that you're interested in to interested in to crop that bit out um and you know chop the teletext data off at the top which goes off into some separate circuitry in your television to be uh, decoded later well you mentioned that you kind of take it from vhs and betamax as well i was wondering how many betamax ones you actually get because that was in a very popular format in the uk but um i guess you've had to get players for them all as well yeah, I mean, um, VHS players are quite easy to come by. Betamax are, you know, a bit, you know, a bit more expensive, but there's still plenty of them around. Um, there are older recording formats as well. The most notably the Philips N1500 and N1700 VCRs, and I've got an N1700, but it doesn't work at the moment. So I think it needs a new belt, so I need to um, get my screwdriver out at some point and go have a look. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it is amazing what you can get out from these old video formats. Yeah, I, mean, there's that many, I remember like VT2000, wasn't that like a, a, a dual-sided video format that was around at the, in the early 80s too? There's so many weird little formats that came and went. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, V2000, I've, I've, got, I've picked up a few V2000 tapes from somewhere. I don't have a player, but I'm sure the Titex can be just as easily retrieved from there too. I mean, it may work even better than Beta or VHS, for all I know. So what's been the most um, interesting thing or a few interesting things that you've discovered in the, the archiving process so far then? Well, I think what interests me, I think, is at the very, very early days of Teletext because it was very much a sort of a friendlier sort of atmosphere about it because there wasn't very many people who had Teletext decoders at that time because they were very, very expensive. Um, so the, the 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 sort of journalism was a bit more sort of one to one and a bit friendlier, if you like, outside of the news um, and whatnot. But um, they they'd have letter pages asking people to write in with ideas of what they could do with certain things. Um, so it's, I, I'm really interested to see how those sort of pages from the earlier days. Uh, there's also um, you can see how the series evolved over time as well. I mean. It was developed by the BBC and IT, IBA in the early 70s, and they'd got similar sort of systems, but they weren't compatible. So they joined forces in 1976, and Teletext, as we know it, uh, was born. And um, that's how it's been ever since. But I'd like to be able to see some really old 
Talis XP used from before 1976 when the standards were different, just to see what uh, what they look like. You're getting into the uh, territory of really old videos there. So do you have to do a lot of like cleaning up or re-putting the tape in there or <laughs> to, well, to extract uh, every, it? Yeah, I mean, every recovery um, I do requires some kind of cleaning up, usually. Um, there's there's always the odd letter that's wrong and the odd, the odd graphics character that wrong, that's wrong, but uh, they can be cleaned up. But certainly the, the, the my earliest... Recovery so far is from I think March 1976 or thereabouts, um, and that came from a dub from the original tape. So it was a copy of a copy, if you like. And um, the that was it's so so noisy and messy. It's very difficult to get anything you know usable out of it at all. But you know it is it is there. I've, I've cleaned what I can up, and uh, there are visible pages I've come out from a tape that's what 40 years old. Yeah, most people didn't even have videos then, though, did they? It's like no, I mean, exactly. I mean, and, and teletext wasn't even broadcast all the time. Like on the examples that I had on the tape, there's the teletext was only on sometimes. I mean, I don't know when, I don't know why, I don't know why that would be. I think it was if the TV station had opted out from the national feed, perhaps to run their own local programming, then they just didn't have teletext on because the technology wasn't there to bridge the data between the regions. But um, it wasn't even on all the time teletext at the time well you mentioned uh telfax and these kind of hidden services did you end up like finding them and kind of have you read any of the stuff on them oh yeah of course oh yeah it's it's a, it's, it's a nosy person's paradise really just seeing what's in there um so i mean so for example i mean we've touched on telfax already which is the sort of bbc intranet if you like of teletext services but there's also the the one i'm currently doing the recovery i'm currently doing has got um data packets in it now these if you imagine the Titex page has 25 um, rows on it the Teletex specification itself allows up to 32 so the seven rows that you can't see on a television picture and what they do with them is they put data in those in those rows so you can't see them on screen but the decoder can do stuff with them and in one of these data rows, the one the recovery I'm currently doing, there is um, racing data. So there's there's odds for horse races in there. So presumably, the dumps. It was a data service that was paid for by somebody to distribute ra- racing odds around the country. Yeah, right. So that's an interesting one. They've got Telfax. We've already mentioned uh, the late nineties. They had and on Sky. We had Sky Interactive in the late nineties. And what you could do there is you could uh, call up a number again, a bit like uh, Televox I mentioned earlier. You'd ring up a premium number or just a number, and it would give you a teletext page that was yours. So you'd you'd enter the teletext page on your remote control, and then it would ask you to type in your account number for for your bank. So you type in your account, you type in a PIN number, and you'll be able to access your um, account details on teletext. Wow. <laughs> which is, and, and those have been recovered. They are actually, on, they're still on the teletext, on the um, on videotape, of course. And modern technology being as it is, I can, on that recovery, I can look at any page at any time. And you can, you can see people checking their account balances online. You can't. It, it only tells you how much they've got in the bank. It doesn't tell you what they've spent the money on, unfortunately. No SSL encryption on that, though, I bet. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, this that you see, it's, it's none of it's none of it is personally identifiable. So you could argue that that's secure. Crazy the stuff that's hidden in there. I mean, Ravi and I were chatting before we started recording. I mean, he'd been reading about kind of Easter eggs that were in there. For example, like you know, some of the the editors might leave personal messages there to the friends or the wife or something. Yeah, that's right. Apparently, I mean, this, this is one of the holy grails that which, which I'd like to find. But the the, the story goes, the um, first editor of CFAX, Colin McIntyre, used to send his wife messages on the Titex series to tell him when he was going to be home for his dinner. So um, to find one of those, that would be that would be something um, that would be something else to find uh, something like that. How did he do that? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I guess. The, I mean, there, 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 there are ways of hiding information in teletext. Like I've talked about the, the data lines, 25 to 31. 
um, just for hiding uh, data on there. But there's that. Bamboozle itself, the quiz was used hidden pages to a degree because although your pages were always like 100, 101, 102, all the way up to 199, for example, in that term, in that range, the the Titex series itself wasn't decimal. It was um, hexadecimal. So you could have pages like 1AF, for example. And uh, that's how Bamboozle worked. The Bamboozle pages were sort of hidden as hexadecimal page numbers so that you couldn't enter with your remote control but you could get to using the fast text controls so that's another that's one way of hiding something or i think probably what colin mcintyre did i would imagine is he would have created a page that just wasn't mentioned anywhere within the cfax itself so of course you've got your index on page 100 101 is the news headlines 199 is the x is the index for example, maybe he put the page at something like uh, 169 or something that wasn't being used. Then he put his wife knew that number, typed the number in, and she'd be able to see uh, the page. I'll be home late tonight, dear. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Your dinner's in the dog. So I've seen that you've kind of been attending teletext festivals, and this seems like an awesome thing for me. Like, uh, Tell us all about the scene. Yeah, you make you make it sound like um, some sort of festival. We all camp over for the weekend. There <laughs> Watch <can't> pages <laughs> <laughs> on a giant screen. Yeah. I'd say, yeah. <laughs> that, that would be great, but um, it's only partially like that. I mean, that's uh, the the beers come afterwards. But um, yeah, I mean, there's uh, as we were saying earlier on, the the teletext got democratised to degree after it closed in this country, and there's a there's a few of us. You know, got in touch via Twitter, and um, we all meet up uh, once a year generally, and we set up somewhere. We've we've visited the uh, Centre for Computing History in Cambridge. We've had a, a room there, and we set up and we've done our thing in there, which is uh, doing do whatever we do. So there's there's uh, me uh, doing the re- recovery of services. There's, there's artists as well. There's uh, other techies doing them. Um, great things with the hardware and great things with the software and the enhanced level teletext and whatnot. So we we all get together in one room. It's a really good way of... The, there, are, there are very few examples of artists and technical people working together as closely as that, I think. So it's a really good example of um, art and science, if you like, mixed up um, to achieve a, a, a common goal. But... Um, yeah, so we we all we set up in a room and we all do our thing, and the general public can come in, chat to us. We have a, a an art competition, and we have lots of stuff being demoed. We've uh, we have hardware demonstrations, so we have Raspberry Pi um, setups that that mean that you can have Teletext on your own television right now, um, even though it's closed. You can you can use a Raspberry Pi to view Teletext again at home. Uh, there's that. Uh, there, are, there are teletext demos using the BBC Micro Mode Seven that we uh, talked about earlier on. So we we had we've had those in the past, which have been absolutely fantastic. Um, so it's and it's everything you, you can imagine, really, from a sort of a yes, um, a, a retro computer gaming party, if you like. But instead, it's teletext related. Well, what amazes me is, uh, as you mentioned, there's uh, teletext demos, and I've seen one of them myself, and it looks absolutely insane. It was that bad Apple uh, demo, but they did it all in teletext. It was running on a BBC Master. Um, Yeah. Absolutely amazing. All these software and kind of new tools are coming out at the moment. Which ones are your favourite? Oh, that's a hard question. That's a good question. Um, I would say... The um, higher level enhanced teletext stuff is most interesting at the moment because um, what that's about is we're all all used to teletext as we saw it at at home in the 80s and 90s. But um, there was an an enhanced specification which allowed for a lot more colours and a lot more um, graphical shapes, a bit like, um, you know... um, Petsky on the Commodore machines where you've got um, hearts and circles and yeah. diagonal lines. It's a bit like that, but for teletext. So you could have what looked like high-resolution graphics but was actually just using characters to generate it. So it's a bit like Petsky. There's that. 
and um, more colours, as I say, you could redefine the character set as well. So you could it just had almost like sprites, if you like, almost on there. And that, that's um, uh, Alistair Cree is um, one of our one of our colleagues in the Teletext Collective, if you like, has uh, developed some software that will actually allow you to do that on a Teletext page and um, create enhanced um, level Teletext data, which which is uh, you know it's a fantastic thing to play with. So. We didn't really run with enhanced teletext in this country, um, but it, you know now teletext is finished. We can we can start to play with it as enthusiasts and see what we can do with it. I mean, are there teletext tools available for like vintage computers too? <clears throat> um, yes, there's. Um, I mean, the, the, there are teletext editors for the BBC Micro, as you mentioned earlier, because you know obviously the BBC Micro had a teletext chip built in. But um, for, as far as other microcomputers are concerned, then the Spectrum had a Teletext adapter, as did the Amstrad, and the Commodore 64 had one, probably others as well. I mean, the Oric had um, Teletext compatibility built in, um, but I don't know if we ever had a, a, a Teletext adapter for it. Um, so the, there's, there's that, certainly, for all the computers. Well, you mentioned the Raspberry Pi there as well. I was looking at this thing called um, Raspberry Pi, Raspberry Teletext, which was a kind of system where you could hook up the Raspberry Pi via the analog and then press text and, as you said, go straight onto Teletext. Is that an archived version of Teletext or a live running one? Um, I can, well, it could be either. I mean, um, the, the recoveries that I generate, I run them through Raspberry Teletext to view them on a you know normal domestic television, because um, a part part of the work that I'm doing is I, I've I've written an emulator for Teletext, so the recoveries that come out of the process I can run them on my Windows machine and view them as if it was on a television. So I mean that's something I'm working on, but to to make sure I'm, I'm doing uh, I'm interpreting interpreting things correctly. I can use Raspberry Teletext to put that same recovery on a proper Teletext set to make sure that um, what I'm generating looks like actual proper Teletext. And also, you know, for any, you can just you can just take it into your living room and, and browse and browse a Teletext series at, at leisure. So how does this work then? So using a Raspberry Pi, I guess you use the is it the composite output into a television? I mean, and then you can press the text button on yeah. your remote. How, how does this work? Yeah, I mean that's right. I mean the um, the Teletext data itself sits at the top of the TV picture, uh, but the the uh, TV picture's cropped out um, in normal use, so you can't see these swirling lines of bits that um, that are at the top of the TV screen. Now, those um, what the Raspberry Teletext does is it. Um, draws these dots and bits and data onto the top of the TV screen that you can see on the Raspberry Pi, but then it uses a sort of a clever hardware trick to shift the entire page up so that those swirling teletext bits that you could see a minute ago are now off-screen. But they're off-screen to you, but they appear in the range of what the teletext decoder on the television set can see. And then the television decoder on the television set picks that up as an actual teletext signal and decodes it. And uh, that's been put to great use, not only for viewing um, recoveries, but also uh, for what's called a TFAX, which is sort of an enthusiast-generated uh, teletext service. And that's um, updated um, by by anybody really by uh, by enthusiasts who've got access uh, to it, and you can update, update pages on there. It it, um, it has RSS feeds of news, so it's got a, it's got a complete news service on there, just like CFAX used to have. There's uh, art on there as well, and and, and it all gets uh, updated automatically, or and when people update. Uh, upload new art to it, so it's it's well worth uh, trying TFAX out actually as a, as a as a project just to just to get old school Teletext back on your TV set. Yeah, because I I really want to have a monitor in my office 
and just have TFAX going straight into there. Because I saw it the other day and the guy had BBC News and it was all the latest headlines on it. There was even a Mr. Biffo section. There was like, it's like a community teletext. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Biffo's got a big section on there with lots of art in. And there's some, he's done some um, you know, special pages for TFAX as well. So it's well worth uh, seeking out if you're a fan of Mr. Biffo. How do you get access to this and what do you need? It's just a pie, isn't it? And uh, Python. Well, you know, well, yeah, the the Python um, comes with the uh, OS anyway. But um, there is a, uh, a website which um, I'll I'll pass you the link uh, later on. Maybe put it in the show notes if you have them. But there is a website that you can go to, and um, that you it, it it'll install it for you on your Raspberry Pi. You just um, you just run this script and it'll install everything you need, and. Um, just press. I think you just type go, and uh, off it off it does its things. It it, it loads Raspberry Teletext. It uh, shifts the screen up for you. So all you have to do is just press text on your control, and away you go. I know what I'm. I've got about four Raspberry Pis doing nothing in drawers at home. <laughs> so I'd, I need to play Bamboozle again or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, definitely worth a go. I mean, I've um, there, I've got the, uh, Bamboozle. There is actually a quiz on TFAX. I think it's a techie quiz at the moment. Um, about uh, teletext technology, um, but yeah, I mean that it's, it's definitely worth giving it a go. And the, the recoveries that I've done as well, they also have playable bamboozles in them. So um, I, on the on the Twitter, I always share those, so uh, people can go and have a go of bam, you know old bamboozles right now in the web browser. But instead of, instead of pressing the red, green, uh, yellow, and blue buttons, you just click the link on the Teletext page instead. But it's exactly the same experience. Well, I remember kind of the last big, like, hurrah for Teletext was probably um, September 11th, 2001, when, um, you know, it was kind of the early days of the web still, really. Um, a lot of people were still on dial-up, and a lot of the news websites crashed. But Teletext stayed online, didn't it? And that was kind of a... Was that kind of the last, like, big day that everyone went to Teletext for news that you can remember? Yeah, I guess, I guess it was, yeah. I mean... Um... I think the difference with Teletext there is that with it being broadcast, you, you don't you don't ha- you don't um, swamp a server with requests for data. It's just been pumped out anyway. So yeah, it's um, it's it's kind of um, it's kind of very sad when it closed because it uh, I think as well as being useful for that sort of occasion when servers go down on the internet, um, it's a technology that's very very easy to use and everybody knows how to work Teletext and it's. You know, in some respects, it's uh, quicker than the internet. I mean, um, if you know the page number, you can press text and have the page number typed in to get the football scores before you can get there using a smartphone. I mean, do you think it's still got a place in the modern world? I mean, well, it's it's, it's difficult to say, isn't it? I mean, it's still in use in a number of countries uh, around the world, um, particularly in Germany. It's it's still use there so if you if you ever go abroad have a have a nose around on the uh, foreign tv stations press text and you know a lot of the time they've got a teletext service still running on them it's still in use certainly um, around europe today and um, there's no sign of it being turned off they they get switched off occasionally you get the occasional one switched off but the uh, you know millions of people still use it i've also noticed there's been a lot of teletext art around especially with digit the show kind of coming out they've been doing teletext icons and stuff do you think there's a place for that kind of style of art to continue well i mean the um the good thing about teletext as a medium is that um that it has restrictions on it so you can't do anything that you want to do on teletext art you have to work with the restrictions and uh, you know if you if you're really good on the medium, like Horsenberger is, for example, then you know you can do some incredible artwork with with such a limited uh, technology. Uh, it's you know it's amazing what um, what Steve does with that um, with that medium um, because it it takes up so little space. It's uh, what is it with one k uh, to to you know to generate all those graphics and characters. It's it's nothing these days. One k. I often find, even though modern TVs have got like, you know, they're all smart TVs now, they've got web browsers and all that, I can never be bothered opening the web browser on my TV and doing stuff no. on there. It's like, it's, too, it's still too much hassle, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, you're right. I mean, I think um, 
what they did when Teletech closed was we have this, we have the red button now, and we still have the red button. Um, I mean, people might not even be aware that we still have it, but uh, the uh, red button text series is a bit like CFAX, but um, it's it's not as fast. It's uh, it's it's not there immediately when you're turning on. You you always press the red button and it's please wait. Uh, but um, you know you can still dial in page numbers for news items, and the page numbers are still the same as they they always were on the red button. So it's still 101 for the news headlines. It's still you know 154 for science and technology. So it's uh, you know it, so CFAX still lives on, I suppose, as a ghost in this uh, red button service that. Uh, People probably don't even know they have. But it is quite interesting that technically it is still possible to do teletext on digital TV, then, it seems. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a decision by the broadcasters just not to support it. They just thought, well, we're, it's, you know, it's an excuse to retire it and uh, move on to, um, you know, what they call digital teletext with the red button. But um, as I say, it's, it doesn't, uh, for me, it's not, it's not fast enough or immediate enough to, um, to capture the imagination of the public, I think. Yeah, it's it's kind of not standardised as well, so everything's different, and all the apps are custom built ones and stuff. I uh, I remember years ago they were trying to do this interactive TV thing. Uh, I think it was just before the red button, uh, where you had like multiple choice of different colours, and you could play yeah. like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and that never really worked. <laughs> no, no, no. I think um, I always found those things a little bit too clunky and slow. I think I think I've, that's the that's the thing with them. I, did, I described them as it is just a bit too slow to use, really. How does this work then? If you if people want to like get in touch with you, I mean, if if I've got like a box of old episodes of like Super Grand recorded on Betamax, could I send them to you and you you would extract the information? I mean, do you accept donations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've um, I've got a massive stack of tapes, so you wouldn't you wouldn't believe how many tapes I've got to go through. I think it'll keep me going until I retire. But you know. If um, if people have any uh, tapes that contain that are going to contain um, things that are of um, are, that are of culturally important, so so for example, uh, Channel Four in the nineties to get digitizer, or really really early recordings, even if they're dubs, then um, that's the, you can get some information out of a dub, even though it's not the best quality in the world. You can still get something out of it. So, yeah, things like that. I mean, it's uh, certainly to uh, get in touch. Um, I can, yeah, you can certainly uh, donate old tapes and I will get off them what I can. And I always credit the uh, person with, um, when I share the what's I've got off the tapes, I always credit the person who donated the tape. Is it possible to extract it off, like, recordings on YouTube and that kind of thing? Or? Uh, no, sadly not. Sadly not, because the uh, teletext data is cropped by the uh, encoding process. When you when you um, record a TV program using your capture card on your PC, it, it crops the teletext data out. Damn you, YouTube and your compression! <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you'll see an old recording and the, and the, the screen will flicker and, the, and it'll roll up, and you can see the teletext data rolling past as it goes up <laughs> to the top of the screen. It's like, oh, there it is. Could oh. probably get a page out of that. I regret throwing uh, away so many old videos now. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's it's funny. It's like who'd have thought that um, you know you go through all your old videotapes, you transfer them to DVD, and then you think, right, well, I don't need these anymore now, and you chuck them out. And who'd have thought you could squeeze one last more thing out of these videotapes? That hidden review of Rise of the Robots from Mr. Biffo that everyone's forgotten about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny about uh, digitizer actually because. Um, I mean, I used to re-digitise for every day, but I never owned a console. I mean, I was—I had an Amiga, Ooh. so <laughs> I know. But uh, I never, I never wrote teamed it. You know, I was never that sort of an Amiga owner. But um, it's just it's, the thing is—that's the thing with digitisers that even if you didn't have a console, it was still entertaining because the the surreal humour, uh, you know, that uh, really made it an interesting read. And I also found Channel 4, it was like, was that Oracle that Channel 4 had? It all seemed a bit, a bit more laid back than the, the BBC service in many ways. Uh, yeah, I think so. It, I mean, the, it, it changed over time. I mean, as I say, with the, with CFAX, um, the, in the very early years, it was quite sort of laid back, but then it got more sort of professional as it went on. Um, and then in uh, late 1989, CFAX 
I, I don't. I'm not really entirely sure what happened to it, but I think it got transferred into BBC News, and it became instantly more newsy. And there was no fun in it at all. Mm. You know, all the fun and games had disappeared. Uh, it, all you know, all the things, all the general sort of interest things, are just gone, and we've just been replaced with news and weather and travel. It was very newsy. So it, it had this sort of. Um, the sort of like the the dark ages, the CFAX dark ages period there from um, of late 1989 to it was the second half of the 90s. But then in the second half of the 90s, they brought all the general content back. And so it was a lot less stuffy than it used to be. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, um, I don't know, I think uh, Oracle was always generally the same sort of level. I mean, the teletext was the same sort of thing, I think. I don't think... I think maybe Teletext was slightly more removed from Oracle on the ITV series. It's uh, difficult to say. Well, Jason, I think it's a wonderful thing that you're doing, archiving this kind of, you know, forgotten part of history for many people, but something that we, we've all got memories of sitting there, you know, with our finger poised over the reveal button or the whole button on Teletext, soaking up all this information. So if people do want to relive it, I mean, where can they find the archive and how do they access it? There, I'm on um, Twitter and their handle there is at Grim underscore Fandango. There's also a website at uh, teletextarchaeologist.org. Um, and there's also a Teletext Facebook group as well. So um, you can uh, join us on there for sort of a more of a community discussion. And there's also a Teletext Archaeologist page on Facebook as well. So there's any number of uh, ways of getting in touch. Well, I'll put all those in the show notes as well. Um, this chat brought, brought back some real memories, Jason. So uh, thanks so much for coming on. No, thanks very much for having me. It's been fantastic. 